Morning, everyone. Morning. Guys, good to see you. Here's where we left off last week. We're in Revelation 2 and 3, which are, um, I don't want to call them letters. That's kind of where I default, but they're really edicts. The entire book of Revelation is a letter, but we have these seven like excerpts written to these seven churches. And about two weeks ago, what we did was we just kind of compared it to the Roman system to see what John is doing kind of craftily and subversively and how he's kind of turning things on the Roman government's head. Last week, we started looking at patterns and points that went between those letters. And I showed you this wonderful graph up here because this is uh, really helpful, right? There it is. Because, you know, you can read that. And uh, where we left it off was kind of throwing it in your court when we left, going, if the symbols and specifics of these things are interesting to you, let's just kind of take a few of them and let that curiosity kind of get satiated, if you will. And then we're going to jump into Revelation 4 today, time permitting. Um, there's no rush on this, but we don't have to bog down if we're kind of done with two and three. Before I go further, I gave these because that's impossible to read, right? Did anyone not get one of these that's here today? Like every hand goes up because, right? And I got one, but I didn't bring it back. All right, I got like six of these, I think. So we're gonna, we're gonna, well, we're not gonna give preference to people who sit in the back. Front row people get them first. I mean, you know, you wanna, you wanna back dwell. That's, that's on you, but I, I, I appreciate it, Marianne. <laughs> Who else? You need one? Here you go. Oh, and you are a back dweller. Look at this. And it worked fantastic. Legitimately, um, these are just the leftovers from last week. If anyone does want one and I don't have one, I'm not going to run and copy it now, but I will get you one as soon as we're done here today or email it to you if you want, whatever. The front page on this, again, is just um, a recap sheet of a lot of the overview things that I think will help you tie the whole book together and just get the global perspective. But the back sheet is really listing out the, the trends that we're seeing in each church. The churches are listed at the top. Here's the map again on them. And that's where you're going to find them located. What you do is you go down the column and you see that each of these little letters that we would call or edict things that John is writing to these churches are in a Roman edict style. They follow a pattern. They, they say something about Jesus or Jesus, I should say, says something about himself because it's all red letter. It's all from him. What's he got in favor of the church? What has he got against the church? What is he asking the church to do? And what is the reward or consequence for doing it? Basic pattern that we're going through. Now, I want to touch on one thing today that gets into the symbolism of these. And then if there's any other questions that came up or, or, or points of just like oddity you want to hit, we'll dig into it. But it's going back to the idea that all of these are written to angels. So if you look at Revelation 2 and 3, each edict starts the same way to the angel at Smyrna, to the angel at Thyatira, to the angel at Laodicea. You see that, right, in there? Which does beg the question, and I know Zach asked this, I think, a couple of weeks ago as well, but, like, what, what does that mean? Because that's kind of weird. Like, have you guys, do you, do you guys regularly write letters to angels? I'm just curious. Yeah, once in a while, Rick? Uh, all the time? Yeah, yeah, her name is Michelle. Yeah, all right, that, that, that's kind of well played. 
So, so how do you write a letter to an angel and how are you supposed to interpret angel? And this is where I think Revelation both gets tricky but also interesting because look, we know it's a highly symbolic book. We know that it's crazy talk. We know that half the time we don't know what's going on here, but like, how do I weed through this? This is where I think some of the page one stuff can come in handy. And you're gonna hear me say this a lot with the symbols of Revelation. So what's it mean? Who knows? What we have is educated guesses at best, because sometimes it'll decode itself for you. So we saw that when he's walking among the seven golden lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand, it literally tells us what that is. So that's a win, that's easy. But a lot of the other times, it's not like there's some secret key that like three Bible scholars dug up in some archeological site and going, oh, look at this, it's like the index to Revelation symbols or something like that. So what, what people are trying to do is learn the culture, learn the Old Testament, learn second, second Temple literature, and piece together as best as they can. But, but I, I wanna bring this up. At the end of the day, it is all guesswork. And all guesswork is not equal. Some guesswork is better than other guesswork, right? Um, but you can pick up commentaries and just read this kind of stuff and you'll find them all quoting each other. You'll find them all like circularly referring back to each other. Well, this person said this, well, this person said this, this person said this, and before you know it, you're back full circle. And, and a lot of it is pretty convincing, but a lot of times you just left, well, it could be this. A lot of times you're left, it could be that, and it's more suggestive of things. That's why I kind of like to make the point, don't get bogged down in the symbols. Get the feel for what the symbol is doing more than what the symbol is. General rule of thumb here. Kind of like going back to the movie clips we showed, you can watch Rambo and not per se know that that is a Russian uniform or a Russian insignia, right, that the enemy is wearing but you still kind of know it's the enemy, right? So if you know the culture, maybe it brings some more richness to it, but you don't have to sit here and go, oh man, I can't, I can't figure this out. Angel is one of these. You got kind of two ways you can go on this. Revelation is apocalyptic, right? And that is actually a genre of literature beyond just being a Greek word that means to reveal or make something clear. And there's all kinds of apocalypses that are written in this time period when you know, Revelation was written. And one of the things that's very notable about apocalyptic literature is they love the weird, supernatural, crazy, angelic kind of stuff going on. They're obsessed with angels in the apocalyptic. There's always angels giving you a message. There's always angels showing you something. There's always angels involved. There's always angels behind the scenes orchestrating kind of things and helping in certain kind of ways and having their own unseen battle. Um, really, uh, it's, it's a little bit older now, but back in the 80s, there was a, a Christian novel that came out called, um, and I almost said it's Mysterious Ways, This Present Darkness. Um, it's a Frank Peretti book. Anyone familiar with that book? Yeah, if not, I don't know how it aged, but in its time, it was phenomenal. Um, 
and I'm always a little afraid because it's like you go back and it's like, oh my gosh, this was so cheesy. Like, you've ever had that with like some, eight, like I went back and watched the A-Team and the Dukes of Hazard and stuff like that. And it's like, in my mind, these are the greatest shows ever. And then you're like, oh my gosh, right? So this totally could be that. Or like you ever go back and listen to like early 90s, like Christian contemporary music and it was like rocking. And now you're like, what is this elevator music that I was listening? I mean, but basically what the entire novel was about was that as people were doing life here, there was this whole spiritual like existence of angels and demons battling over these people and controlling these people and influencing these people and, and influencing the external events at play. And so it was a very Christian perspective book um, and it was a fascinating read for people who might be interested in that kind of thing. But apocalyptic literature is like that. Because when it wants to reveal something, it wants to show you what's behind the veil. We operate with our five senses, kind of here. And maybe a pseudo-sixth sense where we just kind of know something more is going on, even if we can't like smell it, hear it, taste it, or, or physically feel it. But what apocalyptic literature likes to do is show you what you're never going to see by your five senses. Well, Revelation likes to do that. You're never going to figure this out on your own. I've got to show you what's really going on. And so it literally could just mean an angel. Always be willing to take a symbol at face value sometimes. Maybe John or Jesus, let me talk correctly, maybe Jesus is simply just saying, Something like, yeah, you don't know much about this, but I'm just kind of assuming, so roll with it. There's like angels involved here, and each of these churches has an angel watching over it. Stars are the typical term for angels in apocalyptic literature. We see that Jesus holds the seven stars in his hand as he walks among the seven lampstands. Maybe there is something of trying to get these people to realize that there is greater forces at work and that we are actually involving this angel in our communique. Is that weird? You bet it is. If someone did it today, would you go to that church? Probably not. But but that, we got to kind of take it at face value, and here's why I bring it up that way, is because just about every commentator that you will read who gets deep in the woods in Revelation, who specializes in Revelation, I don't care what denomination they come out of, I don't care what their philosophical moorings are. I'm talking the evangelical ones, the reformed ones, the Lutheran ones, the Catholic ones, the old ones, the new ones, the living ones, and the dead ones. All of them pretty much come back to the point of going, I think it's meant to be an actual angel. All right? Now, I will give you the rationalistic view or corrective to it. And I do think that there's warrant here. We've made a big point of saying that Revelation is subversive literature or calling it literary guerrilla warfare. That what John is doing is taking the writing style of the Roman imperial cult and the symbols of the Roman imperial, imperial cult, he's more or less hijacking them and then using them for his own devices and turning it on the Roman's head, much like a guerrilla fighter will steal their enemy's weapons to use against them, right? We also made a big deal of talking about how Revelation being subversive is often written in code so that people are not indictable. So that when the Roman government comes snooping around 
and looking at what you're writing, that they can't hold it up in front of your face and go, this is treason, and now you're going to a cross. So that sometimes John, maybe for self-preservation, but maybe more likely for the people he's writing to, like a guy writing from occupied country, will encode in symbols and images that his receivers will know, but that his oppressor might miss. I think of those Vietnam stories where you get the POWs like tapping you know, on the water pipes or the rocks or things like that to try to communicate. Or, you know, those prison movies we see where like every like fifth O is circled and suddenly in this letter I sent you, we've got, you know, I don't know, like Shakespeare sent or something like that. You know what I mean? It could be that. <clears throat> so let's roll with that line of thinking. What is an angel at its base level meaning? Well, we always kind of run to like celestial, like, like heavenly beings, right? But angel is actually a Greek word, and it just means messenger. And while it is nearly always used for celestial messengers from the heavenly throne room of God, you can see how maybe someone can take a word like that to apply it to like a normal human being who might be the one delivering the letter, reading the letter, sharing the letter, teaching the letter, maybe an elder or a pastor or a deacon of a local church. It isn't a hard leap to see how it can be used metaphorically, right? And so some have said, you know, okay, I get what you're saying with this whole angel thing, but it doesn't make sense. Like, like how do you like, write a letter to an angel? At the end of the day, he says, to the angel, say, so maybe this is meant to be taken as subversive, encoded, guerrilla kind of language where John is actually writing to these local church leaders, calling them angels so that they're not kind of on the chopping block and going, this is the message I want you to bring from me to your local church, right? Now I'm going to ask a question and I know the answer to this already. Who likes the second alternative better? No, who likes the first alternative better? Okay. And the rest, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? What are the two alternatives? Two alternatives is basically, I'm, I'm, I'm literally writing a letter to like some like celestial being in heaven who's overseeing the church or involving him in the letter writing process. Second alternative is I'm using the word angel as a code or a metaphor for some human messenger like a church leader, letter deliverer, pastor, you know, whatever. You know? One is weird and cool. The other is, like, subversive but makes sense. Right? Yeah, Ken. Dave, how about a combination? Hybrid us up. How are we going to do it? I mean, yeah, I suppose there can be a both and. I mean, saying you're writing it to a leader of a church doesn't preclude the idea that there's still an angelic force involved. It, but but it's, it's, it's really just driving by the question of, like when it says, to the angel of the church of Sardis, right? Like, like who's the two there? Right. Y- you know? And uh, I, mean, I guess it could be a both and, but that, that's kind of where people debate this stuff. Yeah. Like that's um, coding things that well, right? <laughs> I 
right. You've got to get the people off the hook, yeah. in my mind, right? I mean, if it's still <clears throat> names, the church, the area, the location, you know, like, I don't know that anyone's going to be cleared from that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you. Um, I'm just going to offer two pushbacks and, 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 and don't take these more as, as much as disagreements because I do hear what you're saying. And it's like, really? That's the best you can do? Um, but one pushback would be to just kind of question our own assumptions because we are so like versed in this that it's so instinctual and second nature to us that I kind of go, would it be to a first century Roman? I, you know, I, I, I at least have to allow that in, in my heart. The second thing that I'd push back on is the way that I at least see persecution happening most often in the church today is in one of two ways. It's either spontaneous, where some kind of like, something happens and someone gets angry and someone's in the wrong place at the wrong time, or it's on church leaders. The people who you see getting arrested in China tend to be pastors, not participants. The people who are getting into hot water in India and getting like mob lynched tend to be the leaders of churches. And that seems to have been the trend through even most of history and especially Roman history when you read about it. So a lot of times it doesn't have to protect all the quote innocence. It has to protect the figurehead because you strike the sheep or you strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter kind of idea. So th that would just be my devil's advocate, I think, to that. Yeah. That, that okay, John. Um, just one comment. Uh, last week I asked you if this was one person that comes and then it sort of expands into the church or is, is it singular still? Because if it's an angel, why would Christ have something against an angel, one of his people? Uh, I don't think he would uh, because I think an angel is going to be perfectly obedient and do everything you, you want to do. And, and so I have trouble with it being a real angel, if you will. Um, there, there does seem to be something that I kind of gather from all this, almost like it's a spirit of a church. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean it in the sense of a being necessarily, but a, you know, when you walk into this church, is it a friendly church? Is it a, uh, is it a church that, you know, holds to the word of God? Or is it a church that is God astray kind of? I just sort of wonder if it may be something even like more nebulous. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and it's because I want, you know, I mean, I look at Ephesus and it says, you know, I know you're doing all the good things. I mean, to me, Ephesus is a legalistic church. I mean, it's lost its first love, but it's doing all the right things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of, I'm, and so, you know, I, and, and so the spirit of the church is somewhere gotten off the rails and needs to be corrected. And I think you can look at all the other churches and see where they've gotten off the rails yeah. in some measure. And to some extent, it's the, what is the essence of your life of this church that would make me wonder? Yeah, I think you're nailing it on the head. But then I think the next million dollar question becomes, what is the spirit of the church? And is the spirit of the church actually being manipulated, dictated, controlled, or influenced by actual forces beyond just what we would call the nebulous gut feel we get, which would be very Revelation-esque. And, you know, and Daniel asked, but yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. We'll circle in the back. I think there was a question, um, but did it... Joseph, um, 
it's, I don't know, and it's all symbolic, you know, when you get to Revelation, not all symbolic, but very symbolic in Revelation that he would have angels there to communicate to, as messengers, each for those, those seven churches. Yeah, and uh, something else with it, and I, I skipped over it back in the day, but I'll put it up here right now. Um, let me go back a few slides. I don't think it's too deep. Here we go. <clears throat> Revelation is very derivative. And, and, and what I mean by that is a lot of the way it writes and a lot of the symbols that it uses are not original. It is drawing on a deep well of things. Now, there's three literary terms I want to share with you. Quote, illusion, and echo. Here's the basic distinction and difference between them. We all know what a quote is. It's when you take, like, more or less word for word, something someone said, and you use it for your own purposes, right? You got to use it a little bit looser in the ancient world. There is not quotation marks in um, Greek or Hebrew. And when they would quote someone, they didn't feel the ferocity that we feel today to get, like, literally, ever, like, 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 they would never write seek in brackets in a quote because someone misspelled a word and then still quote it that way. They were a lot looser with it, and they also didn't think plagiarism was a big deal. Um, you know, you would just take ideas and you would transfer them, and they would laugh at us today with the way that we're so territorial about our ideas. Um, so, but a quote is pretty much when you're lifting it, pretty much, you know, kind of like word for word. An illusion is like an inference, if you will. It's, it's, it's a reference to something without trying to capture the original language. So it's when someone is kind of talking about their own thing, it alludes to it, right? Like you're hearing it going, that feels like that, or that sounds like that. So last week, maybe this is like a, a, a good example. Um, Jenny, I see sitting over here, she was our e Galilee story. And if you were here for church, um, many of you probably didn't realize this, but we completely ripped off the movie Mean Girls with some dashes of Ferris Bueller in there. And a lot of what she was saying were lines from there. And so those would be quotes, if you will. But then you would hear other things like the music playing in the background, or there would just be kind of like certain postures or like the map that we would draw, things like that. It wasn't the same map in the movie Mean Girls, but if you know the movie, you know exactly what it's referring to. D does that kind of help? An echo is this. An echo is an unintentional illusion. And here's the idea behind it. It's that when you are versed in something or immersed in something, it becomes part of you. And unwittingly, without even realizing it, its language starts like rewriting your kind of way of thinking, and it starts becoming your language, and you think you're being original, but in fact what you're doing is parroting and repeating things that you've heard over and over again. So if you've ever prayed this way, Lord, just be with, okay? That is not original. You say that because everyone around you for 38 years of your life has been praying that way, and that's what you've heard, and now when you pray it, you're not sitting there going, now what's the right technique? Start with the word just, so that it looks like I'm only asking for one thing. Even though I'm going to list 27, it looks like I'm only asking for one thing, and it shows that I'm humble, and I don't really know how to narrow it down, and I don't want to restrict God. You're not doing that. You've just absorbed language, and it's kind of working through you. When you go through Revelation, there are quotes, allusions, and echoes everywhere. 
no one is really able to kind of add all these up because what one person sees is an echo, another one doesn't. Here's where this long diatribe is going, though. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. The minimum amount of quotes or allusions that I've ever seen anyone count is in the low 500s, which means there is at least one quote or allusion for every single verse, and some will put it as high as like 1,100, 1,200, 1,300. And I will tell you right now where most of them are coming from is the Old Testament, and then Second Temporal Literature, and then after that, Greco-Roman philosophy, more or less. So you brought up the angel thing. You brought up Daniel. So much of Revelation is derivative from Daniel. And if you're to read something like Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 10, you'll see the story where Daniel is praying. And Daniel is praying to the Lord for guidance, and he's praying for repentance, and he's praying for help and hope in the situation he finds himself in. And 21 days later, the angel Michael shows up. And there's kind of a dialogue of, what took you so long? And he's like, I'm really sorry the Lord dispatched me as soon as he heard your prayer, but I had to contend with the prince of Persia. The heck does that mean, right? So this angel got waylaid trying to come and help Daniel. Is that weird? Yeah. Is that cool? Yeah. Does it make you go, what is going on in this world? Yeah. And does it tell you any of that? No. <laughs> But Revelation picks up on this kind of stuff, and so you see exactly what you're saying there. And I will circle back on that even more in a minute with the symbols. Um, I know I'm talking more about them than actual ones, but did... Yes. So my question was for scenario number two. Um, what was my question? That's a question. <laughs> it was so good, too, wasn't it? <laughs> All right, I tell you what, let's hop back, and then if it comes to you, we'll... I was going to say that uh, if you just take that face value and stop putting our modern-day church building idea on it, these are home churches. Leadership barely means that angel there disseminates it to the church. If you're talking about the angels, I personally think it's the spirit of the leadership that teaches within all the home churches. Yeah, it may be. <laughs> but then you get Corinth or some of the larger churches, sure, they had buildings and stuff. And so I think this is just the idea that something that would be unique or a common across all of them, regardless of one building, ten buildings, however it was. Yeah, possibly. So I think if we just take it to there, I think it's a strong allusion to the leadership. Yeah, and, and it could be. Um, yeah, Kelly. Do we uh, sorry, wait, 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 because I think inspiration struck. I think inspiration struck. Let's not lose it, right? Yeah. Christ, right? Yeah. And you know, in the same same thing, you, you say that it could be guerrilla warfare that he's using, but really it's the style that the emperor uses. He's scared witless of what he's seen, so he's writing in the style that they would understand. I'm not I'm not sure that it's warfare. I'm, I'm I think he's just trying to get the message across to the people that are there. Possibly speaking their cultural language, and there's credence to this. Like And this is what's interesting, and, and again, I don't think it's worth the time for us to collectively go through all of these in each seven church. 
of the seven churches, but when you look at the symbols that are weird, that are used, they all have some kind of immediate culture, all, they tend to have some kind of immediate cultural point of contact with the specific church that they're writing to. I will show you two very quickly, one that you've probably heard and one that you probably don't know. If you go to Revelation chapter 3, we hit the last church. And it's Laodicea. And you've probably heard sermons on this. If not, that's okay. It's, it's great imagery. Um, but he goes, I know your deeds. I'm like two verses in. They are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm or tepid, neither hot nor cold, I am about to you know, spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to vomit you out. It's the idea. It's like if you get milk. You want milk to be nice ice cold, right? Or if you get milk, you want it to be good and frothy hot, like in a latte or something, right? But if you've ever gone and had like 85 degree milk, you know, that's just been sitting out and just, just you know, ripening for you for a few hours, it's not a pleasant experience. I don't mind room temperature water, but some people are the same way. They want hot tea or they want ice cold water. Well, okay. You don't need to know the cultural background to be able to kind of pick up the metaphor. But if you do know anything about this church in Laodicea, they are built by hot springs, all right? But they also have to pipe in their water that they use through an aqueduct system. And there's actually ruins. You can go there and see these ruins. So they are literally by hot water and cold water. But what happens when they're aqueducting in this hot water before it mixes with, you know, before it hits like the cold water pools and things like that. Well, it's, it's dissipating, it's weakening, and it's of course like, like salty water. It's, you know, you can imagine spring water. And what a good, you ever get a good drink of like ocean water, right? And imagine it being like 85 degrees now. It's just kind of, that's the taste of it. So thank you, Laodicea, for this water that you have. But do you see how the image is playing off of what they're actually experiencing in their town? They're a hot water, cold water town, right? Be like your town. You got hot springs, you got cold water. None of you like this tepid crap in the middle, right? So a lot of the imagery will do that. If you back up, which is the church where he has feet like bronze? It's Thyatira. Jesus is revealed as one whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, if you know anything about first century Thyatira, this was like the Gary, Indiana of the Roman Empire. Um, it's where the steel mills were. They were known for their trade guilds, especially in metalworking, especially in bronze and stuff like that. And so, do you see how they're, these are not random images. They are picking up what these people would have understood. And this becomes the big trick with symbology, because one of two things happens. We read a symbol, and we either do this. At first, I think this is the journey. We get paralyzed. We look at it, we're kind of stuck like a deer in front of the headlights. Like, I, I don't get it, I don't know what it means. And then you snap out of it, and then you just kind of like move on to other things because you don't know what to do with it. Okay? 
But then sometimes what happens on the journey is some fool like me comes along and suggests that maybe we can figure out some of these symbols and that it's good to ask the text questions and you get a certain sense of freedom in permission to start exploring possibilities. And before you know it, just like we witnessed today, they're all over the map, right? And they're good and they make sense and they bring insight. But then the danger over here becomes, I don't just get to pick the one that I like because it makes sense to me, because it feels right, because it fits with my perception of the world. And we all kind of do this when we read the Bible. And so you have to then have this corrective of going, well, where is this symbol being drawn from? How would a first century person have heard it? And that's where it gets thick. Right? Because that's where you got to really do the research and the homework. So, what I want to encourage you to do with these symbols is don't get stuck as a deer in the headlight. Dream big, but then don't stop there. After you come up with what looks like possibilities, evaluate them. And evaluate them against not just what I like or think is right, which, again, is a, is a natural tendency, but against the quotes and delusions and echoes and first-century perceptions and worldview. And the easiest way to do this is to just get a commentary. Um, and if you don't know what a commentary is, it's someone who writes a book about a book of the Bible. So they just kind of go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and then they write comments on it. If you've ever used a study Bible, that is kind of like a commentary, but not really because it's so truncated and short. Imagine that kind of blown out to like full, you know, book level. And you can get shorter ones, you can get longer ones. I actually recommend the shorter ones unless you're doing some deep dive research because you get bogged down in things that you just don't care about otherwise. But it'll walk you through what a lot of these images and symbols It'll, it'll walk you through the testing. Let me put you that to help you maybe navigate what you think. Kelly, I, I wanted to circle back. The question I was going to ask is, do we really know when the churches received the letter nope. that he wrote? Because, you know, my thought is he wrote it to the angel because it's not like he's going to go deliver those letters. So he has to address it to some kind of messenger. <laughs> I mean... Right? Yeah, so the best you're left with is, is when you get to the specifics of when is kind of twofold. One is you look at the archaeological stuff, like one of the earliest manuscripts that you find of Revelation. So you know that gives you a at least fixed date there. Um, but the other thing you look at and what people look at is they go, how has this been quoted by other people? Because obviously it's been quoted by other people. They had it in some form. Right? So that'll give you certain dates. And then the other thing people do is they just try to pick up context clues and go, okay, what's the imagery it's using? How does that correspond with other things that we're saying? How does it kind of like fit? And that's, that's about the best you can get. The other thing I wanted to add is with Revelation, when I first read it years ago, I was like the deer in the headlights. And one thing I just wanted to add is the more I study other books of the Bible, Sometimes another little door will open as to what Revelation means, and it's true with even going back and reading Old Testament books. The more, it's like this big puzzle, and the pieces are all over the floor. 
And sometimes the more I learn about a different book of the Bible or a different author or something they're saying, I can pick up a piece from the New Testament, put it in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, to, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's so cool that you're finding that intuitively because yeah. what you're discovering in real time, Revelation professors will tell you this all the time. If you want to understand Revelation, learn the Old Testament. Yeah. Because if you know the Old Testament, you'll know what this book by and far is doing. Not only in general moves, but also in its symbolism yeah. and things like that. Yeah, Zach. And especially with Revelation. Yeah, it gets nuts quick. And, and, and so speaking generally to this, I'm going to cut to one author that I'll recommend who I think really kind of hits the nail on the head and explores it in winsome ways with... I'll stop talking. His name's Grant Osborne. O-S-B-O-R-N-E. He died probably five, six years ago after a battle with cancer. And you can go one of two ways. He has a lay commentary called um, Revelation Verse by Verse. And it's like a little paperback that you can buy. I mean, if it's 200 pages, I'd be surprised. And what he's doing is he's trying to, to write it to the average person who is just coming to church on, uh, on Sunday and is wanting to be a student of the Bible and, and, and isn't presupposing any kind of like theological education, if you will. But then he's got his magnum opus, which, guess what, is also called Revelation, just not verse by verse. And that's probably more like a seven or 800 page one. And you go, my gosh, how can you write that much? But it's, it's surprising how little you can say, even in that length, because when you're dealing with culture and history and, 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 and getting people into the worldview and the stories, right? You kind of want to explode it on the scene. I find it accessible, but I'm biased because, of course, I'll find it accessible because I've been doing this my whole life and I'm trained in it. So if you want to check them out, I've got them on my shelf. You can like page through it or whatever, and I could show them to you. But yeah, I think either of those, depending on where you want to go with it, Avoid? Stay away from or really go for it. Again, given the. Yeah. Because you, know, you have different philosophies of even the Bible, right? And, and understanding of what is the Bible and, and is it God's word and things like that. And so. Yeah, I can't give a complete list because there's, there's so many thousands out there. And I mean, we can't go like author by author. But here is what I would suggest, and this is probably not going to be helpful. All right? There is a school of thought within Christianity called dispensationalism. And they usually don't slap that title on the cover. And I, I want this to be clear. They love Jesus deeply and study the Bible intimately. I just think their perspective is wrong. And some of the examples of dispensationalism that might help you is those of you who might remember the Left Behind series um, from about 20 years ago. If you're reading a commentary and it's sounding like the Left Behind series, I would just read with a very discerning critical eye. 
all right? Because they're just going down a different path than I think the book is about. Um, again, probably not helpful, but okay, there we go. I'd also stay away from Hal Lindsey, but I, I don't think anyone has read him since 1972, so that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so you see, that's a great example. You can read, read. I want you to be hot or cold. I don't want a lukewarm Christian. You don't need to know the cultural background to make sense of this, right? You can kind of figure it out. And yes, should you still test it? Of course you should. Should you make sure you're on the right path? Of course you should, because some have gone, well, hot means you really love me, or cold means you really hate me, or you just, but apathetic, you know, lukewarm means you're apathetic. Well, I don't know if that's what it's saying. I don't know if it's saying I want you to love me or hate me, because I think it's saying hot water is good and cold water is good. Both are good. They're just different expressions of good. But yeah, you don't need to know it. Like, like the Jesus thing. He's got eyes like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. Do you need to know that it's the Gary, Indiana of cities to kind of get this? No, you're looking at someone. He's like glowing with fire and molten metal, and you're getting this picture of the power and glory and ferocity of the risen Christ. So again, you don't have to get paralyzed by symbols. And sometimes when it's significant, we'll, we'll speak into it more deeply on the way. But I think for time's sake, i got to land the plane today. And what we'll do next Sunday is move into the Revelation 4 and 5 packet. Those need to be read together. If you want to spend five minutes between now and next week and read it, go for it. It's this cool picture of the throne room of God, not to come, but as it exists today. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys. God bless.